The evidence though is pretty clear that even though a lot of parents do this, and there's probably people listening to this who've done this, with yeah. a certain conviction that this is a wise and good and protective thing to do, to give a 15-year-old or 16-year-old permission to drink at home in a belief that they're going to sort of learn how to drink in a low-risk manner. Mm. But the evidence is that on average, not only is it ineffective, it's actually counterproductive. That teenagers who are given permission to drink at home by their parents seem to be the ones who give themselves the most permission to drink the most when they're out and about, not with their parents. Hello, my name is Noreen Turley and you are welcome to our HSE Talking Health and Wellbeing podcast. Today we're going to discuss young people and drugs and we are joined today by Professor Bobby Smith, consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist in the HSE Adolescent Services. So thank you very much for joining us today, Bobby. Thanks, Noreen. So, Bobby, I think first we need to understand what drugs do to the teenage brain and the impact that it has and how drugs bring such heartbreak to many families in Ireland at the moment. Yeah, there are certainly big topics. Thinking about the brain piece, first of all, I suppose it's worth thinking for a moment about what's happening to the teenage brain apart from drug use or in the absence of drug use, yeah. because remarkable changes are happening to our sons and daughters in front of our eyes, changes that we don't notice. Obviously, as kids go through adolescence, we see dramatic physical changes. But yes. probably the most important change is what's happening between their ears. The brain cells or neurons are forming new connections between one another. The new connections that are being used are maintained and then they get covered with a layer of insulation to allow for faster communication along them. So the 20 year old brain is very different to the 12 year old brain in that it has a richer network of connections. And that process, I suppose, is happening throughout the adolescent years actually doesn't really end until the mid 20s. And the pace at which it happens within the brain, sort of from the back of the brain to the front of the brain. So it's, it's actually the front top bit of the brain is the last bit to fully mature. And it's that bit of the brain, I suppose, that's involved in the most complex problem solving and decision making. I suppose it's the part of the brain I'm inclined to view as a little bit like the brain's braking system. You know, impulses and urges sort of arrive up to this part of your brain and it sort of vets. Yes, that's a good idea. No, that's a bad idea. Okay. We'll do that. We yeah. won't do this. But that problem solving bit of the brain is the last bit to fully mature. Okay, so they could be 24 before. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's in the mid-20s now. Explains a lot really, doesn't well, it? Well, I think it certainly explains some of what we as adults, when we look at sort of our 15 and 16 year olds and go, how did they not figure that out? Or how, yes, how did they yes. not realise that that wasn't going to end well when they went down that particular path? You know, it's in part because their brain isn't sort of wired the way ours yeah. is. As a parent of four myself, I'm thinking, why didn't I know that sooner? It probably helps us to stay a little bit calmer in yeah. those moments when their behavior can be a little bit impulsive, perhaps a bit thoughtless, a little bit frustrating yeah. to understand, OK, there's reasons why they're maybe struggling to make wise, sensible decisions. Wise decisions. It's not the only reason. Another big part of it, I suppose, Noreen, is they've got less life experience to draw upon than yeah, we do as adults, right? That's at least as big a reason. They're on that journey of learning. They're in situations for the very first time. They're sort of guessing their way through them, whereas we as yeah. adults, in the complex challenges we face, whether it's about relationships, our career, our friendships, we've probably been in similar situations before lots of times. So we can draw on that past experience of course. to help guide our decision making in whatever dilemma we're presented with in the moment. Yeah. Teenagers yeah. don't have that wealth of experience. And the second thing is that they have this brain that's 
sort of designed almost to charge forward and not so good yeah. at sort of stopping. So I suppose your original question, though, wasn't just about the brain development. It was more about the impact of substance use, alcohol or drug use on that brain development. And that is an area that's generated a lot of research over the last 20 years or so. And yeah. Unfortunately, the news is bad in that young people who, you know, the age of sort of 14, 15, 16, if you engage in a lot of alcohol or drug use, the evidence is that it's causing brain impacts. And the worrying bit of that is we're not really sure that those impacts normalize or reverse themselves. So when you say impacts, what does that mean? They say there's a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is involved yeah. in memory. Well, young people who drink a lot, their hippocampus tends to shrink. Oh, uh, wow. And that's that's not good. With cannabis, it's probably the most widely researched of the illegal drugs. And it's, it's widely researched because it's the most commonly used. Yes. So they, there's some brain imaging studies where you follow up children right through childhood before there's any drug use, during adolescence and then into adulthood. What those studies are unfortunately showing is that young people who smoke cannabis regularly, it's associated with changes in the white matter in the brain. So that's the, the sort right. of the insulation around the communication lines within the brain. And less insulation means less efficient and less speedy communication. So it, the bottom line is it is evidence of changes. What does that look like? I suppose in terms of the actual impacts from a psychological point of view are was pointing more towards issues around memory for, again, cannabis, the long-term follow-up studies where people have been followed up from adolescence right into to their 20s, 30s or even 40s, mm. you see a small decline in IQ amongst those oh, who've yeah. used a lot of cannabis during mid-adolescence. And you don't see that for people who don't smoke cannabis during adolescence, but maybe smoke a lot in their mid-20s. The theory is that because the brain is undergoing this process of remodeling and changing, yeah. it's actually particularly vulnerable to these impacts from yeah. alcohol and drugs. So it's a particularly bad time to head down that path, which is just mm. again, an extra reason why the advice Absolutely. to teenagers is if you're determined to drink and use drugs, grand, but hold off till you're yeah. into your 20s, ideally, or certainly very late teens, again, ideally, or that's the aspiration. Yeah. Or if you do, you, know, you run these risks, you can reduce that risk by using as infrequently as possible. A lot of the risks associated with substitutes, if you tell a 15 year old who gets cirrhosis, you know, if you keep drinking like that, they'll laugh at you. They think, I'm, I'm never going to be 50 or 50 is ancient yeah. anyway, because it won't kick in till then. But teenagers don't like this idea of something messing with their brain. That's interesting. And so they take that on, but do you feel like they're taking they that do. on board I, more? I really think that they do. It's something I would hear back from some young people themselves. They've gotten that. As I meet someone who doesn't drink or use yeah. drugs. It's something that will crop up. And some parents would sort of say as a reason their son or daughter has given them for the fact that they have chosen not to not to drink or use mm. drugs. So this idea of things messing with our brains is a sense that our brain is sort of who we are. And yeah. we don't like this idea. I think people are attracted to the idea you can, you know, put a chemical into yourself that, that sort of tricks your brain into experiencing joy. Yeah. That is an attractive idea, but they don't like the idea that what it can cause sort of changes to your brain that you can be left with. Yes. On and, on. and damage it. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah. the long term, rather than just a quick. Yeah. And it doesn't regenerate. You know, the way everybody says, oh, the brain regenerates and rewires itself and all of that. Again, they've done follow up studies yeah. on, on people. You see some degree of recovery, okay. but it doesn't seem to be complete. I like my analogies and, and yeah. like things that are a bit more visual because it's hard to imagine your brain. I'm inclined to think, say, of sun exposure and your skin. Yeah. Okay. So if you get a lot of sun exposure, 
if you manage it right, you'll just get a tan. If you get mm. too much, you'll get sunburn. But if you do that repeatedly over time, you sort of damage the collagen in your skin and that thins your skin and adds to wrinkles. Yeah. And an unlucky few uh, who get sunburn regularly will unfortunately develop skin cancer. And I think drug use and alcohol use on the brain can be similar in that there's some short term effects, some of which are pleasurable or positive, yeah. like people like getting the tan. Some can be unpleasant, like the yeah. sunburn, if you miscalculate. But there's also some of those changes. If you've got a lot of sun-related skin damage, you're left with that. And yeah. Even if you then suddenly start applying factor 50 for the rest of your life. So some things don't sort of fully resolve. Are we telling people that? Are we getting that message out, do you think, in any way? We've begun to, to communicate that a little bit more clearly. It's important, I suppose, not to do it in a terribly dramatic or over-the-top way. It's not like you know, your brain sort of shrivels up and you end yeah, up becoming yeah. a zombie. These are subtle enough changes. The brain does mm. have an ability. If one area of the brain gets a little bit of dysfunction in it or stops working mm. as well, there's all sorts of other networks and interconnections that mm. can to some extent compensate. Mm. But I suppose why invite that additional Absolutely. stress upon yeah. your brain or yourself uh, yeah. requiring it to do so? So I don't want to overstate the damage and risk, but the bottom line is it does things to your brain beyond that short period yes. of intoxication. Yeah. And some of those can persist, particularly right. if you do it repeatedly. And mm. again, it's just another thing for teenagers to factor into their decision making. Will I do this? Won't I do this? If I'm, I'm going to do it, how often am I going to do it? And Bobby, when do you think then if we talk about drugs in Ireland, realistically now, what is the age that young people start experimenting with drugs? When you think about drugs, it's important to broaden it a bit. Alcohol at the end of the day is a drug and it works the exact same way as other drugs do. And the truth is that tends to be the first intoxicating substance that young people encounter. And I think that's a good point because I don't think very often people see alcohol as a drug. Yeah, unfortunately it is, you know, and it's one most of us use. I drink myself, but truth is it bears all the same characteristics. It does all the same things that things that we call drugs like cocaine or cannabis do. It just happens to be the one that's highly normalized, uh, available, sold in shops and legal. And I suppose the age at which young people tend to encounter it, the average age, unfortunately, for onset of drinking in Ireland now is about 15. Right. 15 to 16, I suppose. But there's always... With any sort of journey that teenagers make towards behaviours that we associate with adulthood, whether it's sexual behaviours or drinking behaviours or drug use behaviours, there's always sort of a precocious subset of teenagers, maybe, you know, 10, 20 percent who are the first to do everything. Yes, of course. And they tend to be two years ahead of the curve. So certainly young people drinking at the age of 13 or so. But then obviously there's a lot of kids who aren't drinking at 15 as well. And that's important to mention. We don't think that every young person is drinking at 15. No, but it is about half of them. I think parents hear professionals like myself talking about drinking drugs and I'm always sort of focusing, I suppose, on, on the young people we meet clinically and that's the course, end of the yeah. spectrum problem and a sense that oh, things are getting worse and worse. The good news with regard to alcohol, actually, and Irish teenagers is that some of the data is actually moving in a positive direction. There's yeah. definitely a growing minority of teenagers who are just sort of half turning their back on drinking. They're choosing not to head down that path. Some not at all. Like there's a growing minority of young people in their late teens, early 20s who drink rarely or barely at all. But is that because they have easier access to things like cannabis and other drugs? No, no. There's a subset of kids, I think, who've gotten the help message that we've been trying to communicate across the population over the last decade or so. And they're sort of aware that their body is affected by what they put into their body. And if that's drugs or drink, most of the information they've heard has told them that's associated with some risk. 
people are factoring that into their decision making. So yeah, but um, that's really encouraging to hear though. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, it's something yeah. to be encouraged by. But unfortunately, there is still that majority who head down the path of drinking well before the age of 18, 15, 16, been pretty normal. And then sort of beyond that, you begin to see a subset who will then move into use of other substances. Yeah. And so what are the type of substances that are available to young people in Ireland today? Have you seen changes over the years of the access and the types of substances that young people are using? I think there's certainly a broader range of substances. Beyond alcohol, probably the first one that young people are going to encounter and perhaps try themselves will be cannabis. Right. It's probably about 20% of 16-year-olds will have tried cannabis at least once in their life. That still means 80% haven't. Or yeah, still, it's yeah positive. that's true. But by TY, maybe 20% or so will have tried it. Of the 80% who haven't used it, lots of them will have been in situations where they could have, but they just chose not to. That's good. And that, that's certainly yeah. encouraging too. Of the 20% who've tried it, there's going to be about half of them will use it intermittently. They might be yeah. using it sort of once or twice a month. And then there's a hardcore sort of subset of maybe two or three percent of 16 year olds who be smoking cannabis very regularly. Wow. As I said, that's probably the most common of the other drugs beyond yeah. alcohol. But there is that broader range. You know, cocaine is more widely used. By that age cohort? Um, you begin to see it around 16, 17. It's a pretty expensive drug and that deters a lot of people from using it. Cocaine is probably a bigger issue actually in the late 20s than it is in the mid-teens. But anywhere you get young people drinking a lot and anywhere you get young people getting very drunk cocaine seems to have found its way okay. into those sort of settings in a highly and in an increasingly normalized way yeah. again whether they're in their late 20s or their mid-teens wow i'm not very familiar with them but nitrous oxide and edibles and you hear all these names and what is the impact of those is it the same as cannabis is it different well the edibles tend to be edible cannabis products so okay. they contain the chemicals that are in cannabis that are just prepared in a food product yeah it can look like a cookie a bun unfortunately increasingly actually can look like haribos like jellies yes. and we saw that last year there was a couple of cases or maybe early this year a couple of cases of children actually thinking that there were sweets yeah unfortunately and you know a big brother might buy those for himself yeah. no yeah. you know you take half of one of these jellies and you wait two hours for its effect a little brother or sister then stumbles across the same pack and pops five or six mm. of them in, you know, the way kids would eat Haribos. So yeah. that certainly has resulted in young people ending up in emergency departments. Yeah. And the other challenge with edibles generally, even for older people who are using yeah. them sort of, you know, deliberately, is people do struggle with the dosing. If you smoke cannabis, you will get the effects of it within seconds. Right. If you take an edible, you won't get any of the effects for really an hour or two. Okay. And people can miscalculate. They take a jelly or a cookie. Nothing's happening. They wait half an hour and go, nothing's happening. It must be really weak. I'll take four or five oh, more. Yeah. And then it kicks in two hours yes, later yes. and they're up the walls yeah. with anxiety. And then nitrous oxide. What is yeah, the nitrous, nitrous oxide, oxide thing? It's definitely something that has grown in use over the last probably two, three years. Okay. Uh, so nitrous oxide, I mean, people will actually be familiar with it, especially sort of female listeners. It, it's gas and air, right, which would be used during labor yeah. to reduce pain. The gas in gas and air is nitrous oxide, but it's also available in a range of commercial products. If you buy a can of whipped cream, it's nitrous oxide that that's used to... to Pump the cream out. Yeah, yeah. And to, How do to, they get it then? Well, there's little sort of tiny little canisters inside the can and right. some of those are diverted. Equally, there's nitrous oxide in larger containers and we're beginning to see more and more right. of that as well. 
And I suppose the way it works is people will, will sort of fill a little balloon from the container, big or small. Yeah. And then they'll inhale the gas from the balloon. And what the effect it causes is like a pretty intense alcohol type intoxication. Okay. You know, you'll feel extremely drunk very quickly, but it, it only lasts a few minutes. So then oh, okay. the person sobers up again, but they'll usually redose. Yeah. And they'll do that sort of repeatedly. And what impact does that have on their brain then? Or do we know? The bigger worry, oddly enough, with it is more actually on the spinal cord that Certainly the Matter Hospital and Beaumont, they're seeing a growing number of young people who do a lot of nitrous oxide. They might have done it hundreds of times, perhaps over a period of a number of months. And they're presenting with loss of sensation, reduced power in their wow. in their hands, in their limbs. Yeah. Because it seems to damage the body's ability to use B12, which is a vitamin. Sorry to get a little yeah. technical, but, yeah. but it seems to have the potential to cause damage to the spinal cord. And where are young people accessing these? I mean, the cream is a household item, but the bigger canisters of nitrous oxide, what type of places are they getting these? Or are they for sale anywhere? My understanding is there's regular shops that they're for sale in. It's not illegal. Yeah. It's not sold for the purposes of human consumption, but it's certainly not illegal. This seems to be a European-wide phenomenon, this okay. growing use of nitrous oxide. Yeah. From, I suppose, my own point of view, working in this area 20 years, it does strike me that there's always little fads and fashions mm. within drug use across the population. Things go in and out of favour. Yes. Right now, nitrous oxide has been around for decades. I have no idea why right now it's become it's a trend. sort of yeah on yeah. trend, but it is. And countries like the Netherlands, actually, I think have moved to completely ban all sale of nitrous oxide because Very it good. was such a concern there. Yeah. In Ireland, we haven't taken that step as yet. Yeah. And Bobby, is it fair to ask you about cannabis and people trying to legalise cannabis in Ireland? I would assume you have a lot of worry about that. I suppose the whole conversation about cannabis has been, I think, very unbalanced across Ireland okay. for about the last decade. And not helped really by the whole conversation about so-called medical cannabis. Yes. Which has maybe caused people to underestimate the risks associated with it. Because if something's been talked about as a medicine and young people sort of yeah. hear that again and again, they're inclined to think, well, not only is it not bad for you, it's actually good for you. Yeah. And the truth is that 99% of what people have heard about so-called medical cannabis Mm. is exaggerated and distorted and untrue. Right. Uh, There are some interesting chemicals within the cannabis plant and we need to know and understand more about them and identify them. And one or two of them have been used in certain medicines for very Mm. specific conditions. But I guess if people think about it in 2023, like how often is it that you go to a doctor, get a prescription, go to a pharmacy and then leave with a bit of a plant? Yeah. That doesn't happen. Yeah. This isn't 1723 when that type of thing would have happened quite routinely. We don't refer to plants as medicines. But that whole conversation, I think, has added to people's misunderstanding of cannabis, a sense that it's pretty harmless. And Bobby, I have the example and I mentioned it to you earlier before we started about a young person saying to me if they were offered a cigarette or they were offered a joint, they'd smoke the joint. And maybe is that because they've probably listened to all of the information about or misinformation about cannabis? Yeah. It scared me. Yeah, I'd be concerned about both, I'd rather my sons didn't do yeah. either, right? 
like smoking, whether smoke comes from uh, tobacco or cannabis, it contains the same sort of carcinogens and toxins. If you dried up dandelion leaves and burnt them and inhaled them, yeah. these toxins and carcinogens are released. And when you inhale those into your lungs, it tends to do damage to your lungs. Yeah. And we now have that growing research on cannabis smokers. Yeah. That it seems to have the same risks, at least as tobacco in terms of bronchitis and so on. Yeah. So smoking, smoking is just an unhealthy thing to do, yeah. whatever it is you smoke. So that young person's views on cannabis are probably too benign. And again, it is something that causes me to have optimism about our ability to influence young people's yes. decision making and why we as parents and as a society should feel we can get on top of whatever drug problems we see now. Because yeah. you mentioned smoking, like 30 years ago, it was about one third of all 16 year olds were smoking daily. That's now down to about 5%. So yeah. we, we've achieved huge success. And we never would have thought we would achieve. So it does give hope. It we does give hope. Yeah. yeah. But the messaging young people have received about smoking, particularly this generation of teenagers, they've never heard anything good about smoking. Yes. There's no advertising. There's no yeah. corporations in the background telling them this is cool yeah. or this is this is good for you. All the messaging has been uniform and, and telling yeah. them this is not a good thing to do. It's associated with loads of risk. Whereas again, going back to cannabis, as I said, 75, 80% of what they've been seeing on social media yeah. and, and in mainstream media tends to be presenting it in a positive light. We shouldn't be surprised that use has nudged up a bit and harms have gone up a lot. And the other thing is with alcohol as well and the marketing around alcohol. And I spoke to Sheila Galhini a few podcasts ago and she, when she explained to me about the marketing of alcohol, how it's hidden in plain sight, I didn't actually realise. And then suddenly I saw it everywhere. Everywhere I looked, I could see the alcohol marketing. And I've just been blown away by that. But what, this was only when she pointed it out to me. Yeah. You know, and so kids are seeing that in relation to alcohol all day, every day on every rugby game, football games. And it's just the marketing is incredible and how it influences them. Yeah. And this invariably presents alcohol as something that's necessary or essential or effective at providing mm. you with a, a fun, interesting social life and fitness and health. And we deny tobacco companies the ability to target our children in yeah. the same way. And therefore, it's easier to land the health message yeah. that, you know, we yeah. as health professionals are trying to land around tobacco, that there's no one giving the counter message. Whereas with alcohol, there's a huge amount of positive imagery around it. And then the reason alcohol corporations invest all that money in sponsorship and Absolutely. advertising is because it does influence it behavior. It does influence. And Bobby, again, this was something new that when I was reading a few th articles for the podcast, that children who are involved in team sports, of course, I've encouraged all my children to be involved in team sports, think this is going to keep them away from drugs, away from alcohol. But that isn't necessarily the case, is it? I suppose, you know, thinking about my own kids, I've always encouraged them to be involved in sports too. Yeah. Uh, as a general piece of advice, yeah, I would be encouraging that. There's a slight challenge, I suppose, in an Irish context in that mm. we've allowed a lot of our team sports to be pretty much drenched in alcohol. Yeah. Via sponsorship, via the whole culture that exists in many clubs. And that does percolate, it does mm. seem to unfortunately percolate its way down to influencing alcohol risks, I suppose, for young people associated with those clubs. So, well, that internationally would sort of say a research would that participation in team sports is protective mm. uh, from alcohol related harm. In Ireland, the evidence is a bit more mixed and there's some reason okay. to worry that actually depending on perhaps on the culture of the individual yeah, club, yeah. it may be creating a normalization of yeah. hard and heavy drinking. Yeah. 
but that's not to say obviously we would be encouraging kids to yeah you know completely for me sports yeah absolutely for me that it's good things to do that's certainly what i would do with my kids is, is encourage them to participate in sports but it's it's unfortunately it's not maybe as protective in Ireland as it is in other yeah, cultures. Yeah. Maybe other cultures have done a better job at creating more distance between adult alcohol yeah. use and the sport. Yeah. Backtracking actually slightly to, you know, kids and their attitudes to smoking versus drinking. An interesting thing to do yeah. if there's, you know, people listening to this who've got maybe a, a six year old or an eight year old at home, if you want to understand the power of advertising. Right. And if it's not your own son or daughter, you might have a nephew or niece or yeah. a grandchild. But Ask that six or eight year old to name three cigarette brands. Okay. Then ask them to name three alcohol brands. And when you ask them to name three cigarette brands, they will probably look at you blankly. Yeah. They just haven't been exposed to any alcohol brands. I bet you they'll be able to name some. Wow. And alcohol companies would sort of say, oh, we're not targeting children. And I agree that they don't want children, they don't want six and eight year olds to drink. But I think they're perfectly happy for six and eight and ten year olds to begin to feel warm and fuzzy and positive about these brands and images. Because they know that six or eight year old is going to turn into a 16 year old who's probably going to be drinking. And they would rather that they make decisions to go with their brand rather than a competitor's. I'm definitely going to try that one out for sure. So then when we do talk about young people and we talk about addiction and what does it look like? How do we recognize it that somebody maybe is using any kind of drug, really? Yeah, I suppose, you know, for alcohol or drugs. So first of all, you've got to accept the fact you can use alcohol and not have an addiction. Yes. You can also use drugs and not have an addiction. It's probably about 20% maybe of drinkers and people who are using a drug will be doing so in a way that maybe meets criteria for something that we might call addiction. Yeah. So trying to get some ordinary language about what addiction is, I'm inclined to look at sort of relationship type analogies, right? That people have a relationship with this substance and addiction is when it becomes like what we'd call maybe a toxic relationship. Yeah. Where the young person themselves might recognize this isn't really working for me. From the outside looking in, everyone else goes, this isn't working for you. Yes. you know. But the young person or, or even older people, of course, is really struggling to exit that relationship. They keep getting drawn back to it and there's good bits in it, but the bad outweighs the good, but they still can't quite leave it. And that's sort of the nature of the trap and cycle. I suppose people get caught up in with an addiction. So from a parent's point of view, what they might notice if their son or daughter is beginning to head down a, you know, that sort of path in relation to drinking or drug use could be, I suppose, you know, a, a sort of a change in their mood where they're more irritable. If it's maybe a weekend thing, you might find they're, they're inclined to sort of crash in mood. Drug or alcohol use tends to be more intense at weekends. Okay. So if you're going to see sort of evidence of a mood problem, you might see, you know, again, that notice that that mood is a little bit more erratic around the weekend, including after the weekend when people are on a bit of a come down. Yes hungover type effect yeah. which can sort of last a, a few days so that can look like that whether it's alcohol or drugs yeah, absolutely. the drugs will yeah. also have that kind of hangover effect yeah and do think to warn parents about actually on that is you know some parents know that their son or daughter is drinking that they've sort of accepted that or given them perhaps permission to drink yes. at the age of 15 16 and unfortunately a lot of parents seem to believe that but if there was drugs there i'd know it and it's important to say you won't know it. You know, if you're seeing someone who's intoxicated, you won't be able to tell the difference between someone who's intoxicated on cocaine or ecstasy, a- along with alcohol versus alcohol on its own. Okay, so you the know. behavior, it's still 
pretty much intoxication is intoxication okay. pretty much you know the, yeah. the, there's uh, my guess is 95 percent of parents wouldn't have a clue okay so and the truth is say f- for drug use like ecstasy or cocaine it often is on top of drinking Yes. You know, they're more likely to say yes to those drugs when you're a little bit drunk. They can be intermingled. That said, I don't want to scare people too much. The majority of kids who arrive home seeming drunk, it is just drink. Yeah, yeah. But there is that reality that for the subset who have added in other substances, yeah. it's not like it's going to be going to be really obvious. And in terms of other things that parents might notice, because, you know, again, where someone is beginning to run into problems, they'll start creating excuses maybe not to come home. So they'll be spending more and more nights yes. maybe in friends and, and they'll choose the friends who's got the most lenient parents or yes. the, the least amount of supervision and to crash out there and recover there because they don't want you seeing what yeah. sort of state they're arriving home in. Other things parents might notice is that, you know, if it's drug use, cannabis, cocaine, these drugs can be expensive. So you'll notice sort of money is disappearing faster than you can make sense of. Yeah. You might, if you're paying attention to your own purse or wallet, you might sort of at times think, oh, I thought I had a few 50s in there and there's only one left. What's that about? A challenge though, Noreen, I suppose, is that some of the pointers towards a teenager having a drug or alcohol problem are a bit like people go, well, that's just been a teenager. Yeah, the mood is a bit more irritable and thing. grumpy. They're a bit, yeah. they drop out of sports and activities. They're hanging out, out of the house a, a lot more. Yeah. A lot of teenagers just do those things anyway. And that leads on to the next question though, as a parent, well, what do you do if you do have a yeah. word? And I suppose my general piece of advice, particularly when you don't really have evidence, you don't know what's going on. You just have a suspicion is to approach your son or daughter for a position of concern. Don't go pointing the finger so saying, are you doing drugs? Yeah, that is probably most parents would. Yeah. You know, that's what the anxiety, the anxious course, part of you yeah. is because you're worried. Yeah, uh, you're going yeah, to charge yeah. in there and go, are you and doing, are you doing cocaine? Displeased. Maybe that Johnny or whatever yeah. could even, you'd never thought they were going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. You thought you'd brought them up different or you yeah, thought whatever. Yeah. But unfortunately, that sort of a question or that sort of approach, sort of an angry finger pointing approach is highly likely just to get okay. them to come up, shut down, slam the door in your face. Yeah. So I suppose, again, I'd go back to the point about trying to come from a position of concern. Just say, God, you don't seem yourself this last yeah. while. You seem a bit more grumpy, a bit more down in the dumps. I'm worried about you. Yes. I just leave it at that. The door okay. might get slammed in your face going, you know, leave me yeah. alone. What yeah. do you know about me? You know. Whatever, but to come at it from a position of concern, because even if the initial response isn't, you know, one of sharing information, I think it's more likely in the next conversation or they might okay. then next time go, actually, yeah, there have, there are some things going on for me. And it could be some girl that they've yeah, been yeah. Pr- hoping to cultivate a relationship with for the last couple of years. She's just gone off, off with some other lad yeah, and, and yeah, you're yeah. distraught and heartbroken over that. You don't know what's going on, but it's about responding to what you're seeing, trusting your instinct. Things don't seem quite right right yeah. now. I'm a bit worried about you. And don't turn into sort of Inspector Clouseau in the background yes. trying to gather evidence. Just yeah. just sort of say, say what you're seeing. Yeah. And try to stop yourself from leaping to conclusions. Okay. Okay. What if you do that a couple of times and you're still getting no, but you now have gathered evidence? Where do you go with that then? At that stage where you've tried a softly, softly approach and seeing what information comes back at you and there's nothing coming mm. back at you, I think then you can move on to sort of saying, listen, I, I, I'm worried that there's something more going on here that you're not 
willing or able to talk about yeah. it at the moment. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm worried. Could it be drug use or could it be that your yeah. drinking has gotten a little bit out of hand? From what I've heard is that this conversation should be had with children when they're young and that you have this open dialogue and open conversations. But sometimes that's very hard in different families, depending on what's going on. So I suppose I'm thinking about the parents who find themselves in this situation today or tomorrow. I think the people who have had the Maybe I'm wrong now, but the people who have had the open conversations, maybe they will be able to get information from their children more or maybe not. I suppose it's always going to be hidden. So I suppose it's different types of parenting really as well, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if you have had sort of previous conversations with your son or daughter, and again, Mm. it is what we would advise really from a young age, you know, kids are aware of drinking going on around them. And if we out and about on the street and you sort of see someone staggering around the place, your son or daughter has seen that even if they're eight or 10 years old, there's no harm to say that to them. That's what, if someone ends up consuming more alcohol than is healthy or safe, they can end up sort of in a bit of a state. And to use things that maybe crop up on TV, if you're watching something together, Mm. Uh, just to have ordinary enough conversations where you're trying to communicate to 12 and 14 year olds yeah. why it is as a parent, you know, you worry in a general sense about drinking and drug use and why you have an expectation that they not head down that path. Yeah. What are the mental health risks if a young person does start using drugs, any type of drug early? Have you seen in your daily sure. job? As a child and adolescent psychiatrist, so my yeah. core training is in the area of mental health. And yeah, no matter what age range you're dealing with, in truth, you know, we know that alcohol and drugs can often function as a sort of a driver or perpetuator of mm. underlying mental health difficulties. Mm. There's a complicated relationship, I suppose, between mental health problems or mood problems mm. and substance use. I think most people who drink, most people who use drugs, it's actually they're just sort of pleasure seeking. They're just, you know, looking to make a good mood better. They're looking to add a bit of fun and excitement into an occasion. Yeah. But there's another subset of people who drink and use drugs who are trying to use that substance as a way of taking away some sort of emotional pain or to numb themselves from some sense of stress or distress. Yeah. And it's that second group, actually, I tend to worry more about because they may well find actually on the short term, it does make me forget about my worries. It does make me forget about my upset. It does take away my paralyzing anxiety and social situations because I suppose people who notice that are more likely to repeat it. Next time they're feeling bad or anxious, they'll do the same thing. And And it's that repetitive sort of use is more likely to develop into a more compulsive addiction type pattern. And how long does that take our young people surprised at how fast it can take hold? Yeah, it's it's probably over a period of months. It's certainly not okay. days because... You know, so to be consistent use over a few yeah, months. it tends to be more gradually increasing okay. use. And then we might start off with, you know, most people are introduced to alcohol or drugs by their mm. friends, by their mm. best friends, people they trust most. Yeah. They're in comfortable surroundings with people that they know well. Yeah. And for most Young people, that continues to be the pattern of their drug use. It's something mm. done along with peers. So again, that's another thing for parents to keep in mind, I suppose, who are your son or daughter's friends? Sometimes peers can be a really positive influence, actually, if they're all into health and fitness and my body is a temple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That actually, if your son or daughter is the more precocious one, yeah. actually, those sensible friends could make, yeah. might sort of protect them from themselves yeah, to some extent. Yeah. Other peer groups, that can, substance use can become highly normalized and, and, yeah. and for a young person who's 
not necessarily you know kind of drawn towards substance use if that's what all the peers are doing they're much more and likely inclined to, to do slipping it. down that path as mm. well so but when things are getting problematic for young people you know you start noticing or what what they will sometimes describe as more use on their own and that's sort of when they moved into a different phase mm. of a substance use problem they're sort of just pouring a, a nagging of vodka into themselves you know in their bedroom at yeah. night or smoking mm. weed on their own or using other drugs on their own. And again, it's more of an indicator that this has become a more central part of, mm. of their life. It's not just something that they happen to do when with a group. Yeah. And just going back, you said earlier that 20 percent can become addicted when, you know, so that 80 percent don't become addicted who try it, but 20 percent can. What are the risk factors with those 20% that the other 80% don't get addicted, but this 20%, what is it? First of all, it's, you know, we suppose we do know some risk factors, we do know some protective factors, but important to sort of say it is a bit of a lottery. It's okay. a bit of a roll of the dice. You don't yeah. really know at the start, are you going to be lucky or not in terms yes. of your relationship with this substance? You decide to try at the age of 15 or 25. Yeah. Factors that would Increased risk would be again yeah. extensive peer substance use. If there's a lot of if a lot of modelling of substance use within your family, either for pleasure purposes or for yeah. coping purposes. And when you say modelling, what does that mean? That means mum or dad are big drinkers, are using drugs. Okay. To against that background, young yeah. people are more likely yeah. to, to be curious about this behaviour, to view yeah. it as normal. This is how you cope. This is how you manage. Mm. If it's been modelled within the home setting, if it's normalised amongst their peers. If there is an underlying sort of issue around a mood problem for which this substance provides temporary sort of relief or distraction mm. from, that can certainly be an additional risk factor. Kids who've got less positive things in their life, you know, yeah. less positive relationships, less positive friendships, less positive connection with school, less positive connection with community. They're sort of they're more, more at risk, risk. They're more vulnerable and it's more risky behavior for them. Yeah, God. And then... When we talk about prevention and how to prevent this, what can we do as parents and what type of language can we use? You mentioned already not to go straight to them and say, are you, are you using drugs? But what other things can we do? I think having conversations about alcohol and drugs, as I said, whenever the opportunity presents itself, where that's an opportunity, I suppose, to talk about the risks and, and the downsides of it. And to be curious about what they're seeing, what they're seeing yeah. in their friends and where parents can feel quite de-skilled, I think, is around drugs. You know, yeah. most parents are familiar with alcohol. Teenage drinking is not some new issue. It's going on for, yeah. uh, for donkey's years. So parents can sort of talk with expertise, I suppose, around alcohol. But most parents will be clueless around nitrous oxide, pretty clueless yeah, around, I mean, around to cannabis. Me, to me, and I have four kids, like I said, it, that is really scary. Yeah. I would find that really scary. Yeah. And it's unusual, actually, as a parent, because yeah. generally, even around sex, you know, yeah. parents have been in situations where why they've engaged in sexual activity, yeah. I suppose, by definition. But yeah, there's not a huge number of situations our sons and daughters can encounter that we go, well, I, I'm clueless here. I, yeah. I, I don't I don't have any idea how yeah. to negotiate that because I was never in that type of situation. Yeah. But there is more drug use out there. There's different sorts of drugs so again, though, that's to approach it from a position of curiosity, which your mm. son or daughter asked them what they're aware of, what have they heard in school? Yeah. And if they don't seem to know too much either, go, let's maybe find out a bit, little bit about this. Yeah. And that's where websites can be useful. But you've got to, I suppose, pick your website wisely. Yeah. There's an awful lot of misinformation. Of course. And we I mean, we do have information on the HSE website. Yeah. So the drugs.ie website. Yeah. So drugs.ie is run by the HSE. It, 
contains sort of up-to-date information yeah. on the full range of substances. And I know they sort of updated their information, say, on nitrous oxide. Yeah. There wouldn't have been a page on nitrous oxide yeah, there two yeah. or three years ago. Yeah, but, you yeah. know, so there is now. And they have it now. And I think there's tips on that for how to speak to your young person, how to speak to your child, what to say, how to notice what are the indications of the change in behaviour and all of that kind of stuff. And it's very simply written when I was just looking at it there the other day. It is very simple and it's things that you know already, but it's when you read it, you think, oh, yeah. Maybe yeah. that would be helpful. Yeah. And I think that is a useful resource for people to keep in yeah. mind because there's people listening to this now who think, yeah. well, my son or daughter, they have no problem with drink or drugs now. Absolutely. And they've, yeah. not, sure, your fingers crossed, they never will. Mm. But yeah, for people to know that should things not work out so well and in a six months time or two years time, you find you are looking for some information. And I think that one of the important things that you said there is to trust your instinct that if something just isn't, and parents do usually know, if something just isn't, it's consistently their behaviour has changed or spending more time alone and to, to trust your instinct, basically. Yeah. Some of the adolescent stereotypes are sort of unhelpful. The, the truth is most teenagers journey through their adolescent yeah. years without causing mayhem for themselves or for you as a parent. Yeah. But there is, you know, 20, 30 percent who hit a significant bump along the road. And the problem with this stereotypical sort of idea we have of a teenager, there's a tendency to just dismiss it. Ah, well, that's just being a teenager. And problems can be ignored, I think, during adolescence that wouldn't be ignored in an eight year old or wouldn't be ignored in a 28 year old. Yeah. But because they're 16, we go, ah, that's just the way 16 year olds are. So I think it is important to trust your instinct. You know, they seem sort of pretty miserable, unhappy, angry, upset. Mm. Don't be complacent about it. Yeah. yeah, just try. As I said, the challenge because you're you're worried, right? And people are yeah. worried that they tend to go charge in, finger pointing. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, well, I'd never do that. <laughs> we all do. I'm a parent too. Where I got to yeah. tell myself to calm down. At I times. Know, I know. But yeah, to the calmer you you can be, I, I, yeah. while maintaining that position of concern yeah. and not been plumosed and then flopped yeah. off too easily either. That's another thing. We do make excuses, obviously, because they're teenagers. But sometimes I think as parents, we need to step up and be the parent because sometimes children or young people now are given so much freedom and they're given so much in general. And sometimes you just kind of have to say, OK, and you, you can be their friend and you can have this really nice relationship. But at the end of the day, you're their parent. Yeah. And that sometimes gets blurry, even as they get a little bit older. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, well, no, I'm your parent and that's it. Yeah. I suppose it is the tightrope we walk yeah. as parents. Yeah. Uh, and we're right to want a, a warm, loving relationship yeah. with our sons and daughters, with good communication that in both directions, I suppose. Mm. And, and Irish parents, I think, have gotten a lot better at that yeah. over the last sort of half century. But there is the other side of parenting. So that nice side of parenting, the parenting experts talk about as responsiveness. OK. And um, we've gotten better at that. But the other side of parenting, which is equally important, is about sort of the monitoring and rule setting yeah. and expectations and boundaries boundaries, and, and consequences on those mm. occasions when maybe mm. behavior falls short of the expected yeah. standard. And you need to do both. It's not a case of choosing one over the other, whereas a friend will only do their responsiveness. Yeah. Right? A parent has got to do both bits. Yeah. To sort of love your son or daughter enough to step in and yank the reins a little bit where you see them making choices that you've decided are 
unwise and yeah. unhelpful for them. And not to be afraid to do that. No, and not, not to yeah. be afraid and to accept that that might put a little bit of a strain or damage mm. uh, on your relationship temporarily. Mm. But again, particularly ideally, if it is that there has been that warmth and affection and loving relationship and yeah. good communication before that, your son or daughter will see where you're coming from. They may think you're sort of a bit over the top and a bit too yeah. strict and a bit too worried about this particular issue, but they'll know you're coming from, again, that position of concern. Yeah, we've got to do those both sides of parenting. Yeah. And that's actually something modern parents, I think, have gotten less good at is okay. the rules and expectations. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think they've got less good at that part well, we because have, we're, we're yeah. not setting the boundaries, we're not dealing no, with the consequences? I, I think we've sort of placed too much emphasis on the responsiveness and People have interpreted that as going, oh, I, I can't do anything to damage the relationship. If I set a rule, well, yes. that, that'll only generate some pushback. Yeah. You've got to do both. So stand up and be the parent when, you know. Yeah. If you look at the, your interactions with your son or daughter mm. over their adolescent years, hopefully 90% of the time, it's just the responsive side of things. Yeah. And it's only 10% of the time you're, you know, doing what's called yeah. the demandingness, the, yeah. the high expectation piece and then rule setting. And you're trying to strike that sort of a balance. I should have spoken to you years ago, really, Bobby, because it would have helped me through the last number of years with yeah. with the different ages of my children. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, beyond alcohol or drugs, I mean, ultimately what we're trying to do as parents, we're trying to prepare our kids for the adult world. Of course. So I like this idea of thinking about adolescence as apprentice adults. Yeah. We're the fully trained adults and we're their mentor and we're guiding them on this journey. And as with any apprentice, they yeah. need encouragement. They need opportunity to learn and to be given some freedom. And when they're managing well, we give them more autonomy and freedom and, and ability to learn more. But when they're struggling and making bad choices, we yeah. step in and go, oh, you actually aren't quite ready for that yet. And you've got to parent the young person in front of you. It's not the case that when your older brother was 17, I let him do this. Therefore, I have to let you yes. do X, Y, and Z. Because, because you are way. very often in a household you said, oh, well, you let you let him do that. Or you let her do that. But it mightn't just be right for that particular child. Yeah, completely. I think you've got a yeah. parent, the son or daughter in front of you. And I think you yeah. know, what amazes me actually about parents is that we do this anyway. Yeah. You know, but it's good to have that reply when you are getting that yeah. pushback. Oh, you know, Mikey, he was allowed you know, yeah, to stay yeah. over, go off camping, but his mates are only 17. Why can't I? Yeah. And the reason why the answer could be, well, unfortunately, each time you've sort of spent a night away anywhere, I, I, you know, or half those nights, I've ended up getting phone calls from yes. parents or, yeah. or wants to have to go yeah. to the Garda station. And so that's the consequences so, yeah, that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, completely. Yeah. So it's about managing the amount of freedom and autonomy that our kids get, where they manage it well, yeah. you give them more. Yeah. Uh, where they manage it poorly, unfortunately, you got to step in and parent a little bit more. Yeah. And that's a nuisance, you know, and you might have five kids and there's four of them or have are just dead straightforward. Yeah. And, and then you've got one who's just needs more parenting. And yeah. that's just the look of the draw. That's you know? just the way it is. Yeah. So, Bobby, there seems to be very mixed views that parents have in relation to allowing their young people to drink. Some people allow their young people to drink at home at an earlier age. Some people are quite strict and say, no, definitely over 18. That's what the rules are. So what would you think would be good advice for parents? You're right. Certainly it is something that's a source of a lot of conversation amongst parents and the strong views expressed by parents, perhaps on both sides. 
The evidence though is pretty, pretty clear that even though a lot of parents do this, and there's probably people listening to this who've done this, with yeah. a certain conviction that this is a wise and good and protective thing to do, to give a 15-year-old or 16-year-old permission to drink at home in a belief that they're going to sort of learn how to drink in a low-risk manner. Mm. But the evidence is that on average, not only is it ineffective, it's actually counterproductive. That teenagers who are given permission to drink at home by their parents seem to be the ones who give themselves the most permission to drink the most when they're out and about, not with their parents. Because they've already had the few drinks with the parents and they think, well, that's fine. So I'm well able to drink. Yeah. And it's I've already been given permission to do yeah, this and that's yeah. grand. So I can push the boundaries a little bit. Again, most kids are good. You give them sort of clear guidance and rules. They stick to them most of the time. The odd one will, though, routinely push the rules yeah. a, a good bit. So the parents who give kids permission to drink at home will usually have mm. some sort of rules or expectations around it and they will get stretched. Yeah. Whereas if the rule or expectation is, no, you don't drink, particularly in a country like Ireland, where there's so much drinking by people of all ages. Yeah. I think you can expect most 16, 17 year olds will fail or struggle to stick to that rule. But if they know there's no permission to drink at home, they're less likely to go as overboard as the young people who have parental permission. And that's sort of been shown international research, but there's also actually the winners of the Young Scientist exhibition. It was about sort of eight or nine years ago, two students from Cork at the time, I don't know where they are now. They did a piece of research that won the Young Scientist exhibition, which showed that the amount that parents drank themselves, because again, okay. young people, their sons and daughters pay attention to what we do. The more parents drank, the, the more likely teenagers were to run into problems with drinking. And the young people who had permission to drink on special occasions, even just yeah. special occasions, that was enough to cause them to be more at risk of alcohol problems than young people who didn't have that permission. Mm, that's really interesting because there is such mixed views and opinions out there about it. And, it's a, and if the, that's the evidence, that's the evidence. Yeah. And I suppose the nuisance, though, of the mixed views is that there's parents who will sort yeah. of proudly and, and loudly yeah. sort of say, this is what I'm doing. And many of those parents may have really wise, sensible uh, sons mm. and daughters who don't overdo it, but they actually make it tougher for the rest of us yes. who might have a, a slightly more precocious, yeah. risk prone son or daughter. They make it harder for us to hold the line if mm. they're actually letting your son or daughter's mates drink. So it would be better if we were able to hold the line on this. Yes. And I don't understand the hopelessness that some parents have. Well, you can't hold the line on it. But we managed to hold a line on driving cars. You know, mm. you don't have 15 year olds and 16 year olds just say, I'm taking the car keys now. I'm yeah. off. I'll, I'll yeah. see. I'll be home in two hours. Mm. It just doesn't happen. And it wouldn't yeah. happen. And no parent would go, oh, what will I do? Yeah. Will, I, will I let them? just doesn't happen. Yeah. Kids understand rules. They know mm. which are the real rules that they're just not allowed to break. A tiny subset will break those rules, mm. but 90, over 90% will stick to them. And kids also know the sort of the rules that are sort of only half rules. They're sort of a bit yes. of a guideline and everyone knows it's ignored. So And there'd be no consequences yeah, if are, the rule are is broken. Pretty much no consequence. Yeah. So I think it's important not to allow drink and fall into that second category. I'd, I'd rather it move back towards the clearer rule, clearer expectation that all parents manage to buy into. Yeah, if we all stuck together. Yeah, so like yeah. if 18 is not perfect uh, as an age, but my view would be there's no permission to drink mm. until the age of 18. That said, I'd acknowledge it's an impressive youngster mm. who manages to get to 18 in yeah. Ireland, given the amount of opportunity and temptation they yeah. have to drink without drinking and yeah. fair dues to those who do. But I'd still encourage parents not to drop your expectation. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're trying to keep our kids healthy and well and protect their brains for as long as possible. Yeah, no, I think that's really good advice. And I think it clarifies a number of things and the evidence is there to say that then 
then that's the way we should really try and do it as parents, you know. So, Bobby, we have identified that our young person has an issue with drugs. We've given them the opportunity. We've spoken to them, but they aren't opening up to us. And we're really worried as parents. What are we going to do next? It's certainly at that sort of point, you're wondering about getting some professional support, I suppose, treatment, right? And what treatment means in this context is really a referral to or an appointment with one of the under 18 substance use treatment services around the country. And I think pretty much all of Ireland now, there is some sort of a service response in every location at this stage, no matter where in the the country you live. Some of those services are run and delivered by the HSE directly. There's other ones that are HSE funded, perhaps uh, run by one of the, the regional drug task forces, perhaps. Information on the specifics can be accessed via the drugs.ie website or the helpline number that I know you're going to give at the end. Most of the services you can self-refer. If your son or daughter is already linked in, perhaps to a professional service like CAMS or Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service might be useful to seek them to make a referral. And that can be a bit of a wait, but the target for services is generally to offer appointments within weeks, not months. Okay. And what will happen when you get that appointment is your son or daughter will be expected uh, ideally to come along with you and you'll meet a professional there who will talk with them about their substance use. They'll talk with you as a parent, I suppose, to try and figure out why you're worried. What the professional is trying to do there is get an understanding about what's going on for your son or daughter in a general sense and Mm -hmm. where drug and alcohol use fits into that. And then that should lead into sort of developing a care plan. And usually a series of outpatient appointments, yeah. which involves your son or daughter attending one-to-one appointments for perhaps a few months, maybe once a week or so. And you as a parent probably been involved in that treatment plan as well. Certainly in our services, we probably have significant family involvement yeah. uh, in treatment yeah. in most cases. Sometimes that might be with a family therapist even, you know, yeah. just trying to, there's a lot of energy in families and it's about trying to harness that energy in a positive way to support the son or daughter in making positive change. Yeah, no, it's really good to know that those services are out there for people who are concerned and they can go to drugs.ie to find a list of all of those services that are available or their local substance abuse service. So that's really, really good. So thank you so much, Bobby. I think you've given us great insight into the reality of the problems young people have with drugs in Ireland today. And I think there was some really good information about how parents can discuss or talk to their young people about alcohol and drugs. And so I'd like to just advise people for tips and advice. You can go to hse.ie and you'll find some information on there about drugs and alcohol for young people and how you speak to them. You can go to drugs.ie. There is also information on there for people who are really worried about their children and local substance abuse services. We also have a HSE drugs and alcohol helpline, which is 1-800-459-459. And we do also have a parent's guide called Alcohol and Drugs, a parent's guide, and you can get this on healthpromotion.ie. So that's a lot of information to give you, but there is information and help out there for people. So thank you very much for listening today. We'll talk to you next time. 